Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor, and in today's episode, we'll just be talking about the second episode of House of the Dragon, The Rogue Prince. Oh, what a rogue prince we have here. Just a quick reminder that later this week, we will also begin covering the new Hulu show, The Patient, a psychological thriller starring Steve Carell and Donald Gleeson, and Sona, my usual co-host, will be on those episodes with me. But given the fact that this Game of Thrones show comes out on Sundays, this will be, for the foreseeable future, the episode we kick off the week with. Also a reminder that this Thursday will be the premiere episode of The Lord of the Rings show on Amazon Prime, and I will be covering that show in parallel with this show here. Very curious to think about these two prequels that are based on two hugely popular fantasy franchises, and I'm always curious about the complexities of adapting something like this and very curious to see how successful they are in parallel. So far right now, I think that this has been very successful, this Game of Thrones prequel. Make sure you subscribe so you know when all these episodes become available, and recommend this to your friends and family, anyone who might appreciate the conversation. I'll be breaking down the episode step-by-step by myself, but then later in the episode, I will be talking to my sister, Celia, and getting her feedback on the episode as well. She's been a big fan of Game of Thrones in general and big fan of last week's premiere episode. So this episode kicks off, as I mentioned, the Rogue Prince. And we have a new map, a bloody river running through it. And we have the old Game of Thrones theme music. They haven't come up with a new one. Smartly, I think. I was looking forward to thinking what could they come up with as an alternative. But I think it's probably smart to bring it again. And boy, I did miss it. So exciting to hear it again. So this show just keeps playing the hits. This is fan service once again. And hey, I'm here for it. So far, I'm here for it. Oh, I have noticed that this seems to be a pattern now for most shows that we don't get the title sequence until the second episode. So for example, a show we covered here in the podcast, Severance, that first episode had none of that strange computer animated intro until the second episode. I almost thought like, wait, did I miss it the first time around? But I have seen that this is the pattern now. You don't introduce it. You do a cold open, as they say, with the first episode, and then you bring it in for the second. And before we get going, I do want to apologize that I'm going to struggle with these names. <laughs> I, I'm, I know they, I've heard them a hundred times on the show already, but it's still going to take some time to get used to these names. So bear with me while I try to get my pronunciation down. I fear that the eyes of our enemies are presently fixed on the Red Keep. The Queen has passed. A girl has been named heir to the Iron Throne, the first in its history. The King's brother, so disinherited, has claimed the Targaryen seat on Dragonstone without challenge. And now a foreign power has established a colony in our most critical shipping lane. You paint such an aspirant portrait of my reign, Orcolis. It is an honest one, cousin. At the moment, the crown is perceived as being vulnerable. And a blind incursion in the Stepstones is the only way to demonstrate that we are not? To elude a storm, you can either sail into it or around it, but you must never await its coming. So he opened grimly on Bones literally being picked clean by the crab feeder, a character we have not yet met. Maybe we met him here briefly, wearing some kind of mask. And boy, is this the worst way to die? This might be the worst way to die, <laughs> being eaten alive by crabs. So we open in a very grim sequence here. And after that ugly s- sequence, we see the fallout of it. Corliss shows up at a meeting of the small council. We've now jumped ahead six months, but the small council loves to meet. It's what they do all the time. (laughs) I guess when there's no war around, the small council meets. This also might be the way they save some money on the show. They only need one set. And Corliss barges in. He's angry. He's been warning of the expansion of this pirate army. And of course, he is extremely wealthy. And his wealth comes from controlling the seas. And as he loses distribution lanes, 
it endangers his wealth and, of course, his power as the Seamaster. And he wants the king to do something. But the king seems preoccupied with many other things. And in last week's episode, I was curious to get a read on what this king is like. Do I really see him as weak or not? And in this moment, I really do see him as weak. I mean, he does want to be a, a peacetime king, but that does blind him to the fact that the realities of what's happening in the kingdom itself. So that seems much more solidified. Even six months later, still licking his wounds from the passing of his wife, still dealing with the passing of his wife. He's alienated from his daughter. His daughter's still pouring wine. Here she is now, the new heir apparent to the throne. And six months later has no seat at the table, literally, and pours wine for the men while they meet. A real slap in the face, like not following through legitimately. You can imagine if this was a son of age, of course, not a baby, that the king would have him sitting at his side, learning and not considered a wine maiden. It's going to be very hard for her to lead these men when this is her percep- their perception of her. Corliss, of course, is furious. He wants action. And the princess, who is on the dragon guard or whatever they're called, she is a dragon rider. She says, we do have dragons and one show of force, just one dragon, just one attack could potentially tamp this all down. Corliss likes the sound of that, but the king does not. The king's still afraid. Wait, what if they overreact? What if they see this as an act of war? We've never gone to war against the free folk. And now we're starting to see some of these politics now, you know, 200 years previous before the Game of Thrones events, but we see some of the same sects of this kingdom being called out here. And he also decides that maybe it's better if the princess goes and helps repopulate the city guard. Now, where did the the city guard and king's guard go? Well, it turns out the prince, the rogue prince, has headed off to taken over Dragonstone, slap in the face number one to his brother has taken the city guard and some of the yellow cloaks, as they call them, the actual king's guard, loyal to him, have abandoned and gone to Dragonstone as well. Dragonstone, apparently, the island, which we know from the Game of Thrones show, the original, was actually promised to Princess Rhaenyra. The next interesting thing that happens is when she actually goes and gets, you know, basically dismissed, given some busy work to go repopulate the king's guard, she makes a pragmatic choice rather than a political. Once again, thinking that this is a kingdom that needs to prepare for war. And it would be good to have someone in the Kingsguard that has some battle experience rather than just these sons of noblemen who have some tournament experience and have pinched some poachers and against the council of some of the folks who are there. It would look politically better if you pick this son over that son. She decides, hey, I think someone who has had some battle experience is the better choice. So differentiating herself already from her father. Throughout the course of this episode, we see that Viserys is getting closer and closer to Alicent. She seems much more comfortable in his company now, but still seems pretty uncomfortable with the circumstances as they're playing out. And she keeps picking apart her cuticles as a physical representation of this internal conflict. She still has this love for the princess. She sincerely appears to have developed an affinity for the king, but still seems very uncomfortable with potentially the physical part of this. And this is unconsummated at this point. I believe it to be. Soon after that scene, we actually see Alicent and the princess together again. And she encourages the princess to say a prayer for her mom. Apparently she's not religious, but she does do it anyway. And there's an emotional scene between them. And it's actually very sweet. Alicent still wants to be a good friend, gives her good counsel. But there is a little stinger in there when Renera mentions the fact they want my dad to remarry. And she gets a little defensive going that he should remarry. So I think she does want this more than she may let on in some of the other scenes here. And why not? In this world, becoming a queen is literally the most powerful role any woman can have. Why give that up? Corliss and his wife, Rhaenys, the queen that never was, meet with the king to patch things up. This is a pretty ugly interaction they had back in the throne room. But Corliss has a plan to patch things up. We need to strengthen our two families to each other. 
show that there is strength in the kingdom again. So the plan is you should marry my daughter, my youngest daughter, who's only 12 years old, it turns out. This is interesting that they bring this up here because of the fact that so many times when you look at your histories, these women did become queens or were married off to these men when they were extremely young, girls who were prepubescent, 13, 14 at most. And I do like them casting an age-appropriate actress here to show just how ridiculous this looks, even though, of course, for hundreds of years, this was how things were done. He's uncomfortable marrying someone so young, but we know that, of course, this, like I said, is probably tradition in lands, and these girls eventually will age up to to be more mature. His real hesitation, I believe, is that he has developed feelings for Alicent. Corliss, once again, gives him some good advice that not preparing for a storm is no preparation at all. You can prepare for a storm or you can elude a storm, but you can't ignore it. It'll come either way. And I do think that there is a storm on the way. Viserys and his daughter have an uncomfortable dinner together. It seems that the conversation she had with Alicent earlier has encouraged her to talk a little bit with her dad, but they still don't have it all out here. And as a matter of fact, he completely misreads her when she is trying to say that he dismissed her too lightly in during the small council meeting. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll get better. You'll, 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 you'll learn. You'll learn as you get older. Completely misreading <laughs> her intentions there. Importantly, something I completely forgot to call out, but I knew as soon as I saw it last week that it was going to pay off, and it's going to pay off, I'm pretty sure, in the next few episodes, that Throne of Swords apparently is toxic. It'll drive you na- mad, <laughs> it'll poison you, or it'll give you unhealable sores on your body. And apparently one of the swords, which <laughs> maybe is made out of metal that uh, is cursed or something, to not allow your wounds to heal, has given him an open bed sore on his back, which will not heal no matter how hard they try, and is slowly expanding. And then last week, when he was fighting with his brother, he had cut his finger, and now apparently that wound won't heal either. And they're using some maggots here to eat away the dead flesh to try to save the finger, but they might just have to amputate it. And I have a feeling this is only the beginning of what is going to happen over time. I do like the next scene where we have this emergency calling of the small council, (laughs) yet another small council meeting, although ad hoc, running by Otto and his headmaster, the idea of marrying the Valerian princess. Otto, of course, is against it. He tries to make a an appeal to the mind and then an appeal to the heart at the end, saying, oh, it took me a very long time to get over my dead wife. And at first, I, this is a very conflicted performance here for the king, which I appreciate, that even in his weakness, he actually is pretty smart. I do think that he brings raises this here to feel out Otto. He has a mistrust of Otto. But we'll see by the end of the episode that he still does what Otto wants. But there is some level of mistrust here in raising this question, not one-on-one with Otto, but bringing it in public, almost forcing Otto to agree that it's a good plan. And then, of course, Otto digging in, bringing up the death of his wife again to turn the king's decision again. Then we have an excellent scene, maybe the theme of the season, if not of this specific episode. And we see things very well developed in this very small piece of dialogue in the fact that we have this queen, this princess, overlooked as the legitimate leader who can't accept that if she was overlooked, was it about her or was this about the patriarchy maintaining its control? She can't see it as anything other than sexism because she can't believe that it would just be her that they are negating. I don't know enough about the politics of her and her husband, of the type of leader she may have been to know if this was just one thing or the other. But what's for sure is that it's going to be an uphill battle for for Renera to take the throne. When I'm queen, I will create a new order. <laughs> oh, I wish that could be Rhaenyra. But the men of the realm already had their opportunity to appoint a ruling queen at the Great Council, and they denied it. They denied you, Princess Rhaenys. The queen who never was. 
but they bent the knee to me and called me heir to the throne. Do you remind your father's men of that as you carry their cups? Here is the hard truth which no one else has the heart to tell you. Men would sooner put the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. We have another touching scene between Alicent and the king. She's definitely working, working him, but, he's, but it's legitimate. I mean, I really feel like you see on her face when she fixes the figurine for him, there's a real compassion there. Then another emergency meeting of the small council. <laughs> Back to the small council room. This episode, 80% of this episode was shot in one room. It turns out that naughty, naughty prince, Damon, stole one of the eggs and left a note. A missive. He's the rightful heir. That gets under Renera's skin. He's going to marry Messaria, his prostitute, who he does legitimately have affection for, we see in the first episode, and in this one as well. This will be his second wife, because he's allowed to have two, or more perhaps. All of this is just flouting an antagonism. He's trying to get attention. <laughs> he's like the bratty kid who can't get positive attention, he'll get negative attention. And even with all this instigation, the king is unmoved. He says, ah, oh, you know, he's trying to get my goat. Oh, I know, he's always doing this. It's more of the same. But the princess is smarter, and she is annoyed by this missive. Maybe she's the one who's giving into her emotions more so. But she does mention, well, which egg did he happen to take? Turns out it's the egg that had been selected for the now dead prince. And this gets him going. All of a sudden, he's like, I'm going there myself. And I'm going to drag him out of that castle. Which, of course, is a terrible idea because he is the king and he has no heir. You know, he does have his daughter, but we don't even know whether she would be accepted as queen or not. It could be a true <laughs> problem if, if things go south in this circumstance. They do convince him to stay behind. Renera wants to go with a dragon as backup, and he is totally against it. Once again, treating her like a child. Instead, Otto goes. As he's leaving, Alicent helps him prepare. Otto notices that she's been picking at her cuticles again, and he does encourage her one more time as he leaves that she should go and visit the king tonight. I don't know if that means visit in a biblical sense. I have a feeling that still has not happened. And she seems very uncomfortable with this. So she seems very conflicted. She seems to want this at some deep level. Why not? Why would she pass this opportunity up? But then she also has these, this nervousness. And I think she still feels like she's betraying the princess, which gives her some additional anxiety. And maybe she just doesn't like that her dad is treating her like a pawn in this whole thing, rather than seeing her as a person. Then we get to the centerpiece of the whole episode. It's pretty much right in the middle of the episode too, but is really like energizes this whole entire episode and really takes a decent episode, a lot of table setting episode and turns it into a really exciting one. And it's when they arrive at Dragonstone and meet with Damon on the bridge. This whole thing is very entertaining. Things look like they're about to get ugly. All swords are drawn when Rhaenyra shows up with her dragon and just reminds everybody, hey, make sure nothing happens to me. That dragon will probably incinerate everybody on this bridge <laughs> if any bad thing happens to me at this moment. I'm right here, Uncle. The object of your ire. The reason that you were disinherited. If you wish to be restored as heir, you'll need to kill me. So do it and be done with all this bother. So she wins the day. I do like the fact that as Damon is leaving, he passes the egg back to her like a football. <laughs> this is a nice touch. I also want to call out that I was probably wrong. Last week, I felt that maybe he fathered the princess. Maybe there was an affair in the past. 
and maybe he was pulling strings to get her in power to make himself such an unlikable potential future king that would push her into the limelight. And I think at this point, I was wrong about all of that. <laughs> I think he really is the shit that he presents himself to be, although not one that doesn't have his compassion. And I think we see that in the very next scene as well. And maybe the creepy interest he's had in Renera this whole entire time is just the straight up old school Targaryen incest. There's a, you know, you always, you can't discount that. Those Targaryens do love their incest. As Renera rides off, we do see Otto kind of staring at her as she leaves. And it's hard to read Otto's expression here. Was he impressed with her? Like thinking like, well, maybe she is the next king. Or is he feeling unmanned? Is he just feeling like, oh, <laughs> I guess I uh, would have gotten my butt kicked if she hadn't saved me. I have a feeling that's probably more the way it is because he in general seems to only be thinking about improving his status and the status of his family and not necessarily about the realm. And I think that plays out over and over again with some of the decisions that he encourages the king to make. Neither one of them seem to think that this is a wartime situation. They're just worried about who will be the next king in a peaceful succession. I mean, they as in Viserys and Otto. And I don't know if they're prepared for what's to come in this show. Meanwhile, during this entire face-off on the bridge, Messania started to realize that she is just a pawn and she had stormed off. And Damon, of course, is legitimately in love with her or at least has affection for her and goes to track her down to patch things up. This is an interesting scene from what is being conveyed here, but I have to say this performance is problematic for me. This actress has been very hit and miss for me in the past. She's worked with uh, Alex Garland in most of his films. And she's always a really striking visual presence, like she's a dancer. And has done some really interesting work in Ex Machina, for example, but a little less so in Devs, although I think her, you know, I'm talking about shows that maybe many of you probably haven't seen. But just to speak that, I don't always click with her performance. And I think the big problem here is with the accent. I didn't pick up an accent last week when she appeared briefly, but this accent is very problematic. And I don't even know why they gave her an accent. She doesn't need an accent. Let's just say she's been in the city long enough where she doesn't have an accent. Let's not... I don't know. I don't know what this is. This is a strange decision. Let's just say whether whoever decided that she, whether it was her or the creators of the show who think that she should have an accent, maybe to match the accent of Tyrion's prostitute bride in the first series. Regardless, it's not working. All that being said, <laughs> take all that aside. And what's conveyed here is still interesting that she realizes she sh that she's just the pawn in Damon's game here. And she mentions that she did not come with him for money or for power, or for status, she came for protection. She's a slave. She's been sold to many people throughout her life. And when she just becomes a pawn in a game he's playing, I'm sure that makes her feel much less secure. Meanwhile, the king does not know this is happening, and he goes and meets with Lionel, I believe, is this counselor, and he wants anybody. He's literally just going around from person to person to person, anyone to tell him he shouldn't marry this young girl, but he gives him the same advice that any practical person would. You have to have a queen. She's young now, but she will be of age soon. And you have your richest ally. There are those in the kingdom that are still loyal to his wife as the rightful heir to the throne by giving him a path of lineage. You placate those folks. And of course, you may very well be about to fight a war at sea. Wouldn't the guy with half the fleet be a good ally to have? Keep him happy. And of course, Viserys takes all of this in and he's going to ignore all of it in the next scene. <laughs> Once the princess returns, it's, the king doesn't know about this until after she's come back. He is furious. You're my only heir. How could you have done this? Even though, of course, he idiotically was about to go himself, which, of course, would have been even worse. And she says, look, Otto was going to get himself killed on that bridge, and things would only get worse from there. It would just have escalated. I went to prevent this from getting worse. The dad does seem a little placated by this, 
maybe because it does align himself closely with his own mentality of like, you know, de-escalation. Maybe it's because she reminds him of his wife, which he obviously still has much affection for, his departed wife. But he does finally have an honest conversation with her, not only about missing her mother, but also that I am not looking to replace you as my heir, which I think is what she wants to hear. But he still needs to have a stronger lineage. He needs to have more potential heirs to make sure that their lineage is protected. Next scene, they're back in a small council. Do not take a shot every time they're in a small council. You'll be drunk every episode of the show. He's there to announce that he has indeed picked a bride. Renera nods. That's good. That bride is Alicent. That's bad. She's not happy about this, and she feels betrayed. She realizes that something's been going on this whole entire time, and they've both been hiding it from her. So, obviously, she already feels like she's alienated by her dad. This only makes things worse. And then we have this final scene. Corliss, a second son, overlooked his whole entire life, scrapped his way to the king, the king of Driftwood? Is that what they call him? The Driftwood throne? Has achieved all this. He has hustled for it. He's worked for it. He's gotten there. And he is making a pact with somebody. Who is it? The camera is panning slowly, slowly. Who does it reveal? It's Damon. Damon and Corliss. This is interesting. We see the duality within Damon. He's hearing all this. He realizes that this is a play for the throne. It could be a power grab. At least it could be leveraged against his brother. But then he still has that loyalty to his brother and to the kingdom in general. Like the way things are run in the kingdom. So as much as a bomb thrower as he is, when there's an actual plan to attach himself to, he does hesitate. And that becomes the question now, will he play along or will he go warn his brother in the next episodes? And that's where we leave things. Next week, we see an action-packed episode. It seems to be action-packed episode. I have a feeling that it will probably be one or two really amazing action sequences and a lot of small council meetings, <laughs> if the pattern bears out here. I make that joke, but there were a lot of people talking in rooms in the original series as well. <laughs> And making all these animated war sequences are expensive. There used to only be maybe one giant battle per season in the original series. This series is much more expensive, so we might see more of that, but I wouldn't expect to see it every episode. But we do get some fan service even in the trailer for next week. We get pirates and dragons. Oh my. We'll also be seeing a time jump. Alicent has a male heir. Another threat to Reyna. Her dad promised, but hey, her dad's pretty wishy-washy. I think we've seen that. I very much enjoyed this episode. I have some nits to pick, and I have a bunch of questions to ask my sister in the remainder of this conversation. Stay tuned for that, and I think I have a couple of recommendations for everybody as well. For centuries, my house had to scratch out an existence from the sea with grit and luck. When I ascended the Driftwood throne, I knew what I wanted. So I went out and seized it. Unlike every other lord of the realm, I can say that I built my house's high seat with the strength of mine own back. I've always thought of you and I as having been made from the same cloth. I wasn't aware you had a king for a brother. We're both men who have had to cut our own way through the world. We've been passed over too often. Did you call me to Driftmark to remind me of my low standing, Lord Corliss? Or was there some other reason? 
You've heard of the troubles in the Stepstones. Some Mirish prince is feeding Westrossi sailors to the crabs. I've been petitioning the king to send my navy into the territory. But he's denied me. It was never my brother's strongest trait. What? Being king. All right, Celia. So, so I've already broke down the episode at the top of this episode here. So I have 10 questions for you to answer. <laughs> Ooh, this is like a test. <laughs> well, it's opinion, so I guess it's not you won't get you won't get graded on the answers. All right. So first question I have for you is are you happy to see the Game of Thrones music come back on again? That same theme song again? I feel torn about this because this is not the Game of Thrones. And I have enough trouble not calling it the Game of Thrones. I constantly do that when I'm referring to like, oh, you should watch this, Carlos. I mean, they would have to have a great musical entrance if they were going to yeah. change it, I guess. It would yes. have to be really memorable and amazing. I think I would have liked that they did that instead of just putting the Game of Thrones music back in there. That's my opinion. My first thought was, oh, that's a little lazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I actually feel both ways that like you do. I was actually very excited to hear it. I'm like, man, this is such a great theme. And like you said, how do you top this? Everybody's going to be disappointed. So maybe this has already been renewed for season two. It is very possible that, you know, you can see them maybe changing the theme or modifying it over time once it becomes its own thing. But I think HBO is so much trying to, well, first of all, this massive, massive over half a billion dollar investment in this thing. And second of all, they want to, you know, this is a lot of this is going to feel like fan service and not in the, and for me, not necessarily in a bad way yet. And this is just part of that, right? It's just like, we don't want to get the theme wrong. <laughs> so we'll give them more of what they came for in the first place. I did love, by the way, I excerpted it in last week's recap that there is some music when we heard Princess Reina setting up the, the series itself. There was this kind of like very tribal sounding music which i thought was incredible and i'm like well maybe we'll see more of that as the show goes on maybe it'll it'll transition to a new theme but for now they're giving us what we expect <laughs> right maybe it's a little lazy like you said i i really wish they could have beat the original well that's pretty hard to do i think that's a great that's a great great theme I mean, one of the all-time great themes okay second question is it possibly the worst way to die to be eaten alive by crabs <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty bad. <laughs> yes. I at first I was wondering, I'm like, what is going on with this scene? But yeah, not good. Not good to be eaten live by crabs. Oh man, in that opening segment when you see like the crabs crawling under that guy's skin while he's like kicking his legs, I'm like, wow. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the worst way to go. It, I can think of worse ways, but then I'll get anxiety, but it, it would be <laughs> up there. All right, third question, a little more complicated one. What's your opinion of Viserys right now, the king? I think he's an empathetic character, yeah. but I still find him too weak to rule as the main king. He doesn't seem like he can handle this. I think that uh, he's kind of proven himself to be extremely weak. Like Some of the things you could kind of write off last week as he's more interested in maintaining peace than going to war, but he has some kind of plan. This episode just seems like he is just like really not wanting to engage with a lot of these things that are obviously happening. He's in denial yeah. of how bad things are getting out there. So when we saw that last week, when things were just going very badly and his brother jumped in there to 
I guess, put the fear of God into these people so that they would not continue to act like this. His brother cannot handle the kingdom. He's unaware that all of this is happening. I like that uh, Damon at the end of the episode says, my brother was never very good at this. And um, Corliss says to him, what? And he goes, being king. <laughs> He's, he shouldn't be king. Somebody has to dethrone him. You know what? I didn't have this on my 10 list of questions, but I do have one that I'm going to throw in there anyway. Uh, I forgot to bring it up last week, but I definitely, so I don't want to forget about it again. But like that toxic throne that they sit on that has given him this sore on his back that won't heal. And now uh, his finger has been cut and won't heal either. I mean, this guy may not be long for the world because that throne itself may kill him. Maybe someone's poisoning the throne. It could be possible. That's actually true. If he's falling apart like this from sitting on this throne. Although his brother was sitting on his, on the throne and he seemed to be okay. But he doesn't sit on it all the time, right? So that's another thing. Hmm. Or something else is really wrong with him. Somebody's poisoning him in another way. It could be. All right, next question. Allison, what's her motivations here? She, I think in general, I know what she wants, but she seems to have be conflicted to say the least. So what, what's your read on her right now? I feel like she would welcome being queen i don't know if they're having a sexual relationship i don't think it's been consummated yet i agree and it's been six months according to yes. one of the mm -hmm. conversations yeah since the queen died so she'll go for it i think she'll go for it once she gets a taste of being queen she'll be totally fine with it she's just very immature she's very she's like a child put in a situation she's not ready for i think she'll become queen, be totally like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I want this? And then support the weak king no matter how, even if it goes against her best friend. He doesn't even want his daughter to know that they are talking. Right. Yeah, the reason I'm conflicted on, or, or I can't get a read exactly where her head's at is for the fact that you have that situation, first of all, where Reina is saying that they want my dad to remarry, blah, blah, blah. And then you see her get very defensive. Uh, Allison, and she says he should remarry. You know, the the, king, the court needs it, et cetera, and so forth. So you kind of hear her saying that I want to be queen. And of course, who wouldn't want to be queen, right? Like as a woman, it's like the only way you can get any kind of real power in this world, right? Mm -hmm. And in medieval times in general, I mean, if you want to do a, a historical correlation. But on the other hand, you see her, you know, she's picking at her cuticle still. She's obviously very stressed out about all this. She has this loyalty to the queen. And then when she's with the king, she is saying things that, you know, her auto, her, her, uh, the hand has, you know, her dad has maybe been coaching her too. So you see her kind of playing her cards, but you also see like the way she smiles and she fixed his figurine that he, ha she has real, you know, empathy and compassion for him. So it seems all very complicated, but she seems to also be worried about becoming a mother, about being sexual with this guy. I mean, maybe it's completely rational that she just is very conflicted. What are her options though? Yeah, true. If she was going to end up with anyone, which is, I right. guess, her job to do at those times, this is her best bet. Absolutely. So I think Absolutely. she likes him. He's a nice guy. But um, if it was like today's world, she would not be going for this. She'd be trying to hang out with some cute hipster or something. But <laughs> well, that's this a different world now. is really her. <laughs> I would just go for the king. Isn't this the best way to go for her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's probably going to get married off to someone she has no, doesn't even meet until the wedding day, right? This is somebody she actually likes. And of course, the king, like the best wedding option she can get. Really? So I think she likes him. 
But yeah, her hesitancy, her eating her fingernails from the fear of having to grow up is completely understandable. Speaking of being afraid to grow up, that's my next question is, what do you think about the fact like actually seeing someone who's cast to be like an actual 11 or 12 year old as this queen that she's actually being, you know, who's actually being offered to him as a, a match? Because, uh, you know, back in the day, that is, you know, this is when women got married off, right? When they were 10 years old, 12 years old. So it's like just to see it on screen, it's like absolutely shocking to see in our current climate, obviously. But this was not uncommon back in the day. That little girl, too, really. What are, what are her options? She's right. going to have to go find a prince or a king somewhere else. Exactly. I think they're doing a good job just staying with the times from whatever we know from back then. And... Right getting through the storyline and what I was texting you was it feels a little slow. I don't know why that is because it is probably there's more going on than there was in game of Thrones at this episode. Right. I understand, exactly. but yeah. it feels like a setup still like a, it's part of still the setup for the whole show. Like it hasn't gotten started yet. That's what it feels like. Well, I mean, Game of Thrones, I think if you want to think about the plot machinations there, it doesn't really kick in until you see like kind of the scope of the plot until you get very close to the end of the season, right? When everything happens to Ned. I don't want to spoil that show in case people are watching it in sequence. But, you know, things really don't kick in on that show until the end of season one, right? And like there's no, most of the magical stuff starts to occur in season two. You know, there's no dragons until later on. So this is all way, way more eventful. I would agree that the difference there is that in Game of Thrones, you do have all over the world, right? In different locations, all these different sprawling characters having, you know, conversations and plotting in very different, you know, in different countries, basically. And here, because we're so focused on the lineage of this family, I mean, basically, it's like they are how many small council meetings were there in this episode, right? It's like we're in the small council room 80% of the episode. So I think that's part of the problem. It's not that there's more talking. I don't think so. It's just that there's not these other geographical areas. Like the map is so small in a way. They're just in the red keep the whole time, pretty much, except for this really good scene when they go out to Dragonstone. But this is only the second episode. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure this villain will be fleshed out or other villains will be fleshed out and the story will get bigger. You know, it's only episode two. And like I said, if you go back to Game of Thrones in episode two, we haven't left Westeros, right? We're still like with Ned and his family. So it's not, uh, you know, we, we're expecting to have like 45 characters in 10 different countries. As a matter of fact, if they did that, I'd be like, I don't know who any of these people are. It'd be like completely confusing to me. <laughs> so I, it's okay to roll it slow, you know? I do think they're doing a good job setting this up. I do too. No. I don't think I have, I don't have any issues with it so far. No, no. I'm still wondering where it's going. Like if it's going to, once the action starts, what's going to happen? Because it's been two episodes of this. You're right. That scene is so gorgeous, by the way. Yeah. And I'm not a big fan of monsters, but these dragons are amazing. We spend a lot of money on the dragons. That's why they have to put the rest really of the show. Really good. The rest of the show is inside of these uh, in the in the boardroom because <laughs> they need to spend all the money on the dragons. It's fascinating. I'm really just looking forward to when we start seeing more of the brothers' journey because he's the most interesting character so far. All I got from the king is he's nice. Yeah, but I think they're smart to dole out Damon, and and we'll get to that in just a, another minute. I mean, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at my list of questions here and like the last three or four are all about Damon. And because it's sequentially in the show, it's I think they're smart to kind of bring him in in the middle of the episode. Right. Because it kind of like gooses the whole thing up uh, another notch. 
But before we get to that, I did want to get your feel on my next question here, which is the queens, the conversation between the queen and the princess, or I guess not the queen, right? She never was the queen, but the queen that never was. And her talking about the to the princess of saying they'll never accept you as a ruler. And Reina's response to that as well, they didn't accept you. That doesn't mean me. I, I can change things. And uh, she basically says, oh, yeah, then why are you still pouring their wine? Which is a very good point, because it's going to be very hard to imagine someone like bending the knee to the girl who poured his, her, her, his wine uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it also speaks to the fact that her dad's not doing a really good job of introducing her as their next leader if he legitimately plans on doing that. Like we said, he's he's not good at leading. My thought right at the beginning of the episode is, why is this girl still pouring yeah, their wine? Of course. Yeah, I think it's very important that that's the beginning of the episode. It's six months later, six months later. Well, at first I didn't know it was six months later. So when I saw her pouring the wine, I go, maybe this is a flashback. Nope, she's pouring their wine, the queen to be. Yeah. Imagine that. If that was a son, there's no way he would ever pour their wine, first of all. But he definitely would be sitting down and like getting counsel or, or you know, getting trained by his dad's side. Look at me pouring wine. <laughs> That's crazy. I thought then that the reason he was still making her do that is so that she could listen in and learn. Oh, she has been, which is, you know, good for her. He can't actually be like new queen. All right, you guys. Oh, yeah, of course. We're going to talk about all the stuff that I don't want to talk about with this little kid who's going to be your girl queen. So I was thinking maybe he knows she's listening and she's learning. And he brings up one time in a conversation that she needs to be around them to learn stuff. So maybe that's his plan. I would not make her pour wine, though. I yeah. might make her sit you yeah. know, to the side of the table. Exactly, with of course. Exactly. A notebook or something. Maybe don't say anything until after the meeting. And what did you learn at this meeting? Right. I would not be like, here, we're going to just keep this wine pouring ceremony over. Maybe that's why he originally wanted her in there pouring wine. Not, not that he thought she was going to be a ruler, but so that she would learn. I don't know if that, I agree with that, just for the fact that when he when she confronts him at dinner and says like you know oh i spoke up in the council meeting here's my idea i think we should do something and he dismisses her and says you'll learn you'll learn and you see her face that is he, he completely misreads what she's trying to say there and that makes it i think to me pretty clear that he's just like she poured the wine before that's what daughters do and uh, he's not thinking anything of it and not even thinking my opinion of this, because I just think he's not really a strategic thinker. I don't think that he is thinking about like, wow, if she's going to be their queen one day, she can't be pouring their wine like that's that's crazy. Correct. But he doesn't really think much, though. Yeah, he does. He hasn't really done anything substantial since he's been king. I think His he just biggest... wants to keep the peace. That's what he does. Yeah, he that's, it. that's it. His uh, fame is really just for having peace during his reign. Okay. My next question, I'm going to merge these two questions together because they're both about Damon. And one is, uh, you know, what'd you think about the whole sequence on the bridge, you know, at, at, at Dragonstone, which we already touched on. And then not only the dragons, but just the way that whole thing played out and how Renera comes and de-escalates it in her own way. I wanted to get your opinion on that. But secondly, also curious to get your opinion on like, uh, and maybe this is a much longer conversation, but like, what is his plan? He just seems to be trolling them. Like last week I was saying, you know, here's, he is setting things in place, but now I'm like, 
He's just antagonizing them. He's on that bridge doing what? Like, what would be the outcome there if she hadn't shown up? Would they like start stabbing at each other like that? And then they would have to take action against him. And then what? They would have like a mini war going with with him and the, the, the kingdom. Like, what is his plan? Like, I, I don't see any strategy to his plan either. He must have known that she was going to show up. No, he didn't know that. He seems very I mean, surprised when she shows up. This is odd. The whole thing. I do feel like she is his daughter. I feel like that might be the case strongly. But what what's he doing in general? Why is yeah. he marrying one of his brothel girls? Yeah. Is this I mean, really he, an important thing to do right now? Well, I don't think he's doing it just to antagonize the brother because he obviously has an affection for this uh, girl. I think it's very that's important what I mean. that they show him, you know, introducing her to the dragon, right? Like that's not something you do with like a fling, right? Yeah, but why is he picking this moment in time to do this? He could have just... Oh, it's just trolling. Her, it's just, it's just absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have to marry her. He can live with her without. And the, you see That's that what I mean. he has not run this by her at all. She's annoyed at being made into a pawn, right? I don't know what he's doing. That's what I mean. I don't, I have no, <laughs> I do not see any strategy in anything he's doing right now. Like it He wants very... to take over because he doesn't like the way it's being run and he thinks he could do better. I think that is his daughter. I'm still think your uh, theory last week was good about how maybe he's, setting things up for her it's odd that he took the egg yeah it's such an insult too like which egg he took obviously once again he is trying to antagonize his brother and i think when he criticized his brother last week saying that the council is giving you bad counsel and for example i think about otto who is not giving him good advice otto is always thinking a like the king he's always thinking about just keeping the peace and b thinking about advancing his own otto's personal of, you know, family position by, you know, obviously putting his daughter in there and stuff. He's not thinking about what's happening in the realm at all. Never, not for a minute. So that seems like a really bad strategy. And his brother is warning him about this. But then how does this, everything he did this week, you know, just repeatedly slapping his brother in the face and making his brother look weak across the entire kingdom. How does that help his brother in any way? I do not understand his strategy at all. Only if he knew she was going to show up. I don't, I mean. So he must have known. Maybe he knew that if he took that egg, she would show up. That reaction on the bridge, he doesn't like smile and be like, oh, I knew she was going to come here. He seems like not angry. He just seems like vexed by the whole situation, right? I like that he throws her the egg like a football. At the end. That was pretty funny. But uh, I, 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 he does not seem like he was anticipating that to, to play out that way. Maybe he was thinking if he bothered his brother that much, his brother would show up because he does say to Otto, where is his brother? I don't see him, right? And then maybe that's what it was. Maybe he saw it. If he took the egg and he did all this stuff, it would be enough to draw his brother out. But I don't think it would be to kill his brother. I don't think he wants to kill anyone in that situation. He knew someone was going to show up. That, that's got to be his plan. Maybe he didn't know it would be her. And he did think it was, was going to be his brother. So I don't think he just thought nobody was going to show up. Oh, so, obviously. He's like, you know poking a hornet's nest there. And you see his brother, and I thought this was very interesting that his brother still is like, oh, he's just antagonizing me. This is what he likes to do. And he's trying to dismiss it. And then Renera is smart enough to be like, which egg did he take? And of course, as it turns out, as soon as it finds out that it's the same egg he had kind of bookmarked for his own son, that of course that sends him off the deep end, which of course now the king is like, I want to go there. And which is really stupid when you don't have an heir. I mean, you have this daughter now as your heir, but you know, you can imagine how contentious that would all be if he suddenly died out there somewhere. And now we have the deposed prince and 
the princess fighting this out like it would be so <laughs> it would be a mess total mess and i'm sure like corliss would try to make another claim with his wife for the crown as well so it would be a disaster and he's just like i'm going it's like, so he's so impulsive after being supposedly so cautious he's just not a good leader at all terrible leader <laughs> you know it's funny every time we have all these questions and we've had them in our other podcast where we're like what if this is why because it seems illogical it always turns into something ridiculous so i'm hoping that this is a great series the funniest thing about all of that this is something that i do not research on the internet because since this is all prehistory to the game of thrones books like if you want to know what happens to every single one of these people and how they die because they're all going to die at some point you could just look it up on a wikipedia article which i'm trying to avoid but i'm sure all of this has been predefined and we're figuring out like what the hell's going to happen next and it's like we could easily find out if we wanted to, but I'm going to choose not to. So I don't want to know. Yeah, I just course. want it to I don't be want to good. Either. I don't want to be like, you know, saying next week, go, huh, I'm wondering, you know, I kind of want to be like, that was amazing. I can't believe it. Like, I want that to happen. So speaking of plots, my last question is Damon and Corliss. So Corliss shows up or invites, I guess Damon is at Corliss's. Yeah, he's at his kingdom at Driftmark, I think it's called. So he has gone to visit Corliss. Corliss says, you know, we are both second brothers. We were both kind of overlooked. We scrounged and made our own way. And we should have a partnership here. And at first I was thinking, oh, Corliss is working with the pirate, right? Like this is all a big scam. Like I'm thinking much that way. But that's not true at all. He's actually pretty earnest about what he's trying to say. It's like the two of us together are going to do battle with this pirate so that, you know, because I have to protect my shipping lanes because that's how I got rich. <laughs> it seems like completely practical what he's asking him to do. Um, of course, he's doing it behind the king's back, but because the king is not making good choices. So this doesn't seem to be that evil, what they're conspiring here at the end of the episode. I think everyone thinks he's a figurehead. Nobody really has any confidence that he can make any really big decisions. They've probably been making decisions for him this entire time. So... That's all they're doing. No one even asks them anything serious ever. Their council meetings are pretty lukewarm. Well, I mean, you have everybody's just trying to protect their own asses. You know, Otto has his own agenda. And the only one that's ever talking about, like, what are we going to do about what's actually happening in the world is Corliss. And of course, he gets dismissed for as being like overreacting. Meanwhile, this guy is going, like, you know, taking uh, up, you know, uh, one land after another. It's these free folk that are backing him. But, uh, you know, hey, if you keep not protecting your kingdom, those people are going to turn on you. It's not this is not rocket science. Oh, I guess my last question would be so in general, I mean, we think we've already touched on a bunch of this, but where do you feel with the show so far? I have one critique. I'll just throw it out there and maybe it'll, it'll become a conversation starter, which is the one thing I miss in this show so far is that there's nobody like Tyrion Lannister in here where they introduced him so early in the show, like literally in the first episode. And you have this guy who you see everybody very earnestly. Ned is trying to be like a true nobleman, like follow the Knights Code. And, you know, he gets screwed over by that. And you see the Lannisters manipulating people using that. And everybody has like this kind of very political agenda. And Tyrion was like kind of watching it from a distance, commenting on it. And basically he was like the most fun character on the show. That's why everybody loved him so much, especially early on. Like later on, one of the bad things about those last couple of seasons is how inept he became as a politician. But he was like really the maybe the most entertaining character on that show. And we have kind of like a Jamie Lannister corollary here with Damon, 
But we don't have that one person who's kind of like the jester, like the guy who's making jokes all the time, but he's actually the one who knows everything that's going on. And it's early, so maybe we will get a character like that. But I think it's very lacking here. Everybody's so serious about everything that's going on. And there's nobody that's kind of like an audience surrogate in the middle of the show. I hope they do have what you just said, because a lot of things in the Game of Thrones happened that were so amazing that aren't happening here yet. Remember the king everyone hated? That guy was such a jerk. Okay, so we don't have that. We don't have the jester, as Joffrey, you say. Joffrey. Yep, he was so mean, that little kid. <laughs> we don't have, I mean, even the Targaryen beginning in the Game of Thrones was very specific and really dramatic. Everything's a little lukewarm in this series, for my taste, at this very moment. Which is why I was saying that the first two episodes feel like a setup. So I don't judge the first episode or two of series because that's usually what's happening. I am looking for it to be a little more surprising. <laughs> I need more dread or something. Well, you got to jump way ahead in the next episode, right? You have the uh, son being born to the new queen. So, of course, uh, Rhaenyra is going to have her issues. We have dragons and pirates fighting on the beach. So that's a big, exciting action sequence. They spend all the money on the giant uh, battle between the pirate ships and the dragons. You end up probably with the rest of the show will all be people talking in rooms. <laughs> they blew the budget on that. But uh, yeah, and there's a time jump, right? So the baby's born already in the next episode. So we're jumping ahead. Who knows? Nine months, 12 months ahead. Maybe some of these questions we had here will be a little more well-defined. Yeah. So I am looking forward for the next episode. I really am. All right, but it so here, didn't grab oh, me like, you know, yeah. Game of Thrones grabbed me right away. See, I had the opposite experience. Game of Thrones. I gave up on Game of Thrones when I first watched it. And what? then I came back to it only because people go like, you have to see the final episode of season one. But I had literally made it to episode three and then I quit. I just gave up on it. And then uh, and then I watched it, by the way, when I came back to it, I watched it and I struggled to get through the first six or seven episodes. It was only like the last three or four episodes of season one that clicked with me. So if I was going to do apples to apples comparison, I'm way more engaged. And part of it, of course, it's because I'm already kind of vested in this universe. But uh, you know, so I can't really make that comparison that this is as good or better or whatever than that one. But yeah, it, it the the show even now when I try to rewatch it, I can't watch those first few episodes. I have no engagement at all with the material until like really late in season one, basically. I did not feel that way at all. I I, <laughs> I was like one of those people who like was completely not interested in watching Game of Thrones, and I only came to Game of Thrones by the way because of the finale, basically. And then like you know, season two, of course, is incredible. Uh, especially some of those plot twists that come late in, in the game. And then season three and four, really excellent. And then it kind of tapers off <laughs> after that. But those three, those three seasons, I think season two, three, and four, especially three and four, are really, really strong. Well, I'm totally invested in this show. So it sounds like I'm kind of like, I don't know, but I'm going to watch the whole thing. You know, we talked about my obsession with finishing everything. So I'd watch it even if it wasn't good. But I have a feeling that it's going to be good because... Who is going to, in their right minds, put this series out as a prequel to Game of Thrones and not have it be good? That would be that would be crazy. Well, intentions are always, you know, you always have a good intentions. Doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be successful. But I, I do have confidence in what they're doing right now, to be honest. 
and I'm definitely going to hang around and see how it goes. Oh, and interestingly, they just, you know, after season one, episode one, which got massive ratings, they uh, already renewed it for season two, which of course, I mean, it was kind of a foregone conclusion, unless it had terrible ratings, they're going to bring it back for season two, because you don't make this massive investment and then say, hey, we're a one and done season. It's just like, you do not spend money like that. And then say, you just give up on it after season one. You know, this has got to be a two, three, four year uh, storyline for this to even be make sense as a, you know, financially considering how much money they're spending. Well, so far I'm invested with the brother, but in order to watch these kinds of, or any series really to watch any series, especially from season to season, you have to be really invested in the actual characters. Like I want to fall in love with some of these characters. Yeah. I want to, it's what you were saying about Jamie in yeah. Game of Thrones, like you, we fell in love with him, or we had a very strong reaction to Joffrey, who we hated his guts. You know, exactly, right. I need strong reactions to get me through series in one one way or another. I want someone to root for. So anyway, I'm I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, I think I, I think they do need to work on that. I agree, but I mean, there's a lot to do to win people over in that first episode, which I think they did do. And now they have to create, you know, this world has to become interesting in and of itself. And they're going to have to start doing that now, too. And like I said, this is two episodes in. So I'm pretty confident that they have some kind of plan, especially when you have, unlike the Game of Thrones show, where you have the framework for the series. So you just have to go in, put interesting characters in there. Right? That's what you have to do, which isn't easy. Don't want to make it sound like it's super easy. But I do think that people have the skill to do it. And, and so far, I'm still very interested. Me too. Okay, we got a, only a few minutes left. I did want to make a quick recommendation that the director of this episode is Greg Yatanes. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He is also one of the executive producers. And interestingly, Celia, he is the director of nine episodes of Banshee, one of your favorite shows. I love Banshee. <laughs> Which I did not get into. We don't, I don't think we have time to discuss it here. However, it's so good. However, I have a recommendation for you that you might like because of Banshee. This same guy, Greg Yetanes, directed also for Cinemax. So it has so, those same ingredients that you like, you know, you know, lots of sex, lots of people having their cr skulls crushed in with baseball bats. And uh, <laughs> this show, because it's Cinemax and it has some of that same, uh, you know, uh, tenor, all Cinemax shows kind of have the same ingredients in different measure. There's a show called Quarry that he directed the entire first season. It only lasted one season, but this guy is a Vietnam War veteran. He comes home and he is completely damaged from what's happened to him in the war. Can't find work because he's been implicated in some shady stuff that happened over there, like a massacre of a village that he doesn't take responsibility for. But you know, the media has kind of framed him and his friend as the instigators of this thing. And basically, this is like a prequel to Barry or something. Someone shows up at his house and says, if you kill people for me, I'll pay you. And then it's all this complexity of what happens in that circumstance. And he kind of embracing the fact that he is now, after his experience in the war, has legitimately become a, a sociopath. And he's just come, kind of coming to terms with it himself. So this is something that I've only a few episodes in, by the way, only three or four episodes in. It's called Quarry, once again. It's already canceled from you know five years ago or so on Cinemax. It ran around the same time that Banshee was on. And uh, it's like Banshee, but without the campiness that I really don't like in Banshee. It's And it actually deals with the psychology of these characters. So it's very interesting. And it has, like I said, it has some of the same action and you know fist fights and gruesome beatings and sex in every episode, of course. <laughs> but uh, it has all those things, but it uh, takes these characters very seriously. And I'm really enjoying it so far. 
uh, very psychological, much slower than Banshee. You know, only like one person dies every single episode brutally instead of 10 or 15. So uh, anyway, I think you might appreciate it. Like I said, it comes from some of the same people who did Banshee, but a much more kind of somber. It's the somberness, not all the violence and stuff or the sex even that I like, because one of my favorite movies is The Sound of Music, just so everyone knows. <laughs> it's like the most vanilla, but it's so beautiful. Oh, my God. It still like brings tears to my eyes of joy. So I love, but I also love Banshee. Yeah. <laughs> what is this thing called? Quarry? Quarry. Q-U-A-R-R-Y. Quarry. Oh, and it's right. basically, it has based on a series of books. I think there are 15 books into this series, but uh, they never made it past the first book basically because of the, the show. But it is, I think I, I haven't finished it yet, but I've heard that the first season basically is, you know, you can watch it as just a complete thing as well. Even though they is were it intending the quarry it. or just quarry? Just quarry, just quarry. So it's not on HBO? It's on Cinemax. I don't think it's available on HBO. Banshee was also HBO and then it popped up. I mean, I'm sorry, it was at Cinemax and it popped up on HBO. So uh, you can check for it there. But I have a feeling that all these Cinemax properties are leaving HBO, given all the shakeups that are going on at HBO right now. That whole place is falling apart. <laughs> but, Interesting. Um, yeah. All, all right. right, I'll watch so it. We're out of time, but thanks for the conversation. Of course. All right, talk to you soon.